PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast where board studying continues to be enjoyable. My name is Blake Briggs, founder, co-host, proprietor, MC, entertainer, sometimes if you like lame jokes. For each 15-minute episode, you gain high-yield board knowledge. As we like to say, come for the stems, stay for the content. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, at EM Board Bombs. My personal Twitter is at BlakeBriggsMD. As usual, we like to plug our premium podcast. That's the EM Rapid Bombs. If you enjoy EM Board Bombs and want a TikTok version of our podcast, that's what we advertise Rapid Bombs podcast as. Except unlike TikTok, we promise not to track you and steal your data. <laughs> we just hit the 100th podcast episode about two weeks ago. We're over into the 120s now. Each episode is about two to four minutes where we drop high-yield bombs in question-answer format, and it gets seared into your memory like a well-cooked steak or vegan Impossible Burger, whatever you're into. On average, we drop about four episodes a week, so you get a new podcast delivered to your feed almost daily. This is great if you're a type of person who likes short bursts of learning done via audio form while driving, working out, or walking the dog. And we have signups ranging from medical students to residents to even long-term practicing attendings. You can sign up for EM Rapid Bombs on emrapidbombs.supercast.tech. You can also look at the show notes at the bottom of this podcast. The link will take you directly there. And you can also find the link on our website at EM Board Bombs as well. So Dr. Hussein will not be joining us this time. He was actually inspired by the recent space travel race among millionaires, and he is seeking sponsorship by Red Bull so that EM Board Bombs can have its own space launch. You know what they say, they give you wings. So we'll keep you posted on that. So we have a young male who's dropped off via private vehicle out front of your ED. His vitals are as follows. Heart rate 60, respiratory rate 10, oxygen saturation 85% on room air. He moves occasionally and grunts to sternal rub. What is the best next step? Choice A, naloxone, 0.4 milligrams IV push. Choice B, naloxone, 1 milligram IV push. Choice C, naloxone, titrate to effect, IV push dose. Choice D, naloxone drip at 0.1 milligrams per minute. correct answer here is going to be choice C, naloxone, IV push, titrate to effect. So opioid abuse is an epidemic that has its roots, unfortunately, in poor prescribing practices by physicians and really misleading unethical practices by some big pharma. In the U.S. alone, 5 million people in 2015 are estimated to have used heroin at least once in their lives. 5 million people. It's insane. So unfortunately, even scarier, 329,000 people reported to use heroin within that month. 3.8 million people report misuse of an opioid prescription in 2015 alone. And here's the kicker. Nearly 70% of people who currently use heroin have been reported to also use prescription opioids. In fact, in Alabama, the state that I'm currently practicing in, fatal drug overdoses increased 27% in our state alone 
from 2019 to 2020. The U.S. overall overdose deaths are up 30% from 2019 to 2020. So what are signs of an opioid overdose? We have a quick guide on our website that covers opioid overdose in some details, has some great tables on comparing some of the complicated pictures that different opioid overdoses can present and the unique pictures of unique overdoses. I encourage you to check on that and take a look at it. We're going to hit the highlights here in this podcast, though. Signs of an opioid overdose are as follows. Depressed mental status, decreased respiratory rate, decreased tidal volume, decreased breath sounds, and meiotic or constricted pupils. A normal pupillary exam does not exclude opioid withdrawal. Let me just say that louder for the back. Ildefa's not here, so I don't have to yell really loud from here to the other state he's in. A normal pupillary exam does not exclude opioid withdrawal. So for example, meperidone does not change pupillary size, and often the presence of adulterants or co-ingestants like sympathomimetics, anticholinergics, they can make the pupils appear normal or even enlarged. So keep that in mind. By far the best predictor of opioid toxicity is respiratory rate less than 12. The heart rate's typically normal. It's like 60 to 70, so I wouldn't rely on that as your ultimate predictor here. Not all patients are going to be bradycardic, even though this is a depressant. You're going to look for evidence of trauma immediately when the patient arrives or they're in the ED. Certainly, you're going to check a finger stick glucose, and an EKG is never a bad idea, especially in cases of suspected self-harm or where a loss of consciousness occurred. However, you should not let an EKG interfere with the acute management of a patient that has an opioid overdose. Speaking of things messing with your management, let me get on my soapbox here. Honestly, urine toxicological screens have no role here. In fact, a young patient where opioid overdose is clinically suspected and responds well to naloxone, no evidence supports further diagnostic workup. Opioid overdose is a clinical diagnosis, and the status of drug screens does not change management. What's your differential diagnosis in a patient that presents obtundin? Well, obviously, you're going to have to consider other sedative hypnotics like conidine, ethanol, benzodiazepines, and barbiturates. Hypoglycemia is also a commonly missed medical diagnosis in your obtunded patients. Clonidine has opioid-like effects and can cause meiosis, but it produces much more bradycardia and hypotension. These patients just look sicker. What's the management? So as always, ABCs come first. You know, pulse ox is useful for oxygenation, but end-tidal capnography is better. It can monitor ventilation, which is more important in suspected opioid overdose patients. Hypoventilation, in fact, is one of the earliest signs of respiratory decline with an entitled CO2 measurement greater than 50 that can predict complications of hypoventilation. Patients with respiratory depression or apnea require oxygen assistance, the latter with bag valve mask while naloxone is being administered. Oxygenation reduces the risk of ARDS. We'll get to that in a minute. Here is one of the complications. So let's talk about naloxone here. It's a pure opioid antagonist. It immediately displaces opioids at receptors. It reverses all the respiratory and central nervous system depression within like one minute. It's pretty awesome. It's like pressing that reset button on the computer. It just takes everything out. It has reversal effects that depend on the type and duration of the opioid or opioids taken. And it usually lasts about 20 minutes to an hour. Unfortunately, many fail to recognize that naloxone triggers immediate opioid withdrawal. So the quote-unquote go big or go home dose is the wrong answer in certain situations. 
That's what this question really was getting into and why I probably tripped up a bunch of people here that have trained or been in environments where they always give the big dose or go home. So it really comes down to the patient, and let's keep it simple in this regard. The main question you have to ask yourself when you're thinking about opioid overdose is the patient in respiratory or cardiac arrest or in a critical state. The keywords are non-arousable or non-spontaneous ventilation. If that's a yes, by all means, you're going to give huge doses of naloxone. By huge, I mean appropriately large, and we'll talk about what they're going to be. If not, then you're going to give smaller doses of naloxone to avoid precipitating withdrawal. That's naloxone in a nutshell. That's all you need to know. Just kidding, we hit the details here. So naloxone in life-threatening situations, if available and you have no IV access and you're working on it, intranasal naloxone is recommended. It's fast. It's you know, not going to be as good as the IV dose, but it's solid in this case. Otherwise, the initial dose is going to be 2 milligram IV rapid push. You can also do intramuscular or intraosseous for similar effects, but it's just not as predictable as IV. So if the initial dose is partially effective, just give that same dose again. If no effects are observed, you're going to give a higher dose. And there's really no literature on how many times you should administer naloxone or wait for an effect. And there probably never will be literature. I can't imagine this <laughs> getting past the IRB. Maybe in the 1970s it would have gotten past the IRB. But in our experience, we wouldn't advise more than 10 milligrams total of naloxone if you have no clinical improvement at all. It's interesting how this debate often comes up. Uh, but in this case, 10 milligrams from what I've read from most tox websites, they all agree that's pretty reasonable. Let's talk about naloxone in non-life-threatening situations. This is going to be a much more common patient situation, right? These are the patients who are quote-unquote drowsy. They have, you know, bradypnea. They're nodding off to sleep. When you ask questions, they might have an oxygen saturation in the low 90s. And this is where I really don't suggest slamming 0.4 milligram IV naloxone. That's just asking for trouble. Also, when I say I don't suggest doing that, that's like most toxicologists and most evidence-based medicine websites. That's going to easily reverse any opioid in patients like this that are not life-threatening states. But there are implications for putting patients into immediate withdrawal. Here's number one, staff safety. Patients given full-dose naloxone will wake up swinging fists, they're angry, they're in pain. Keeping you and your staff safe is the utmost importance. You know, the ED is a violent place. 40% of ED workers physically threatened at some point in their job. We don't want to add to that. The second reason is going to be patient safety here. And of course, patients who have an entire full withdrawal are more likely to leave against medical advice and proceed to abuse opioids again, often very, very soon. Now, some of you out there may be listening to this podcast and thinking, well, who cares? I don't really want to get into the ethical dilemma uh, when you think that. Remember that you're a physician and we should be caring for all of our patients. You know, it's like the saying, everybody counts or nobody counts. I've actually adopted this as a cool refrain when we we're discussing ethics in the emergency department. It's actually the refrain from Harry Bosch, who's the hero of Michael Connolly's hit novel series. He's an LAPD detective. It's a pretty awesome TV show as well on Amazon Prime. I highly recommend it. It's one of the best crime dramas I've ever watched. Anyway, back to the subject. They're at risk of using higher opioid doses as well because they're in active withdrawal meaning that they are more likely to return to the hospital in another overdose. And of course, studies have shown these patients that overdose on opioids and then leave AMA are at higher risk of mortality. 
So for all intents and purposes here, let's stop slamming Narcan for people in non-life-threatening states. We advise mixing 0.5 milligrams per milliliter with 9 milliliters normal saline in a syringe. You now have about 40 micrograms per milliliter. You're going to titrate to effect via the IV by administering very slowly. Big shout out, by the way, to PharmacyJoe.com for this simple approach to titration here. I don't want to take credit for it. The patient's going to open their eyes. They're going to become more alert within a minute. If not, you're going to continue to give the solution and add more as needed. And that's it. Nice and simple effect here. Helps our patients, helps our staff, and it really keeps everyone safe. When an opioid effect is expected to be prolonged, you know, if you have a massive overdose, you know, long half-life of an opioid medication like methadone potentially, or of course a suicide attempt, a continuous infusion of naloxone should be used. You likely have this stocked at your hospital as well, but it's easy to make. You're going to mix 4 milligrams naloxone in 100 milliliters of D5W. You're going to shake that up nice and good, and you can start the IV dose. This is a fascinating portion here of how we start IV drips, and actually just came up on my shift in the ED earlier today, funny enough. The initial naloxone infusion rate should be about two-thirds of the naloxone dose that reversed the patient's symptoms. The example here is going to be if you have an initial bolus dose where the reverse symptoms was 2 milligrams, you're going to start at 1.3 milligrams per hour. And you'll titrate the infusion as needed, you know, increase by 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams per hour of symptoms return, etc. So monitoring post-naloxone. This is one of the big parts of our ED care. It's pretty difficult, actually. It's controversial how long patients who received naloxone should be watched in the ED. The underlying concern is that the duration of naloxone is shorter than the duration of most opioids. So, you know, if naloxone wears off in about 40 minutes or so, the close monitoring is needed for a few hours to make sure there's no recurrent symptoms. The problem is here, <laughs> and I'm laughing because this is literally so dependent on who you talk to, no one really agrees on the amount of time to observe, and that's honestly never going to happen. Here's another study you're never going to get through the IRB or find out about. So each patient is different, and each street substance is different. Even if a study is done in a certain region of the world, what's to say that the different illicit substance is being sold somewhere else, which has different effects, and you have different patient population, and you have a different patient altogether that's having different reactions to different medications. It's insane. And it's actually really funny. There was an ongoing joke when I was a resident, which attending was known to hold the record on who observed these patients the shortest or the longest. We as residents took bets because sometimes some attendings change their answers as well. So when deciding on observation and disposition, it's not an easy decision, and it involves a lot of questions. Firstly, it matters what route they ingested the opioid. You know, IV and intranasal are more predictable. Also, you're going to think about the patient's underlying health, you know, the presence of other co-ingestions, especially other sedatives. Discharging a patient, quote, as soon as safely as possible is not always the right answer in some cases. So when the choice is made to discharge, it's really important here that you offer Bystander administered naloxone. It's available as IM or intranasal routes, and this should be prescribed to the patient. You should discuss with the patient what you're giving to them. Providing the patient or family members or friends with this medication reduces overall mortality. In fact, one study showed that the implementation of a comprehensive opioid overdose program decreased deaths from like 46 to 29 per 100,000. That is no slouch number. And honestly, you know, we can't play a game with numbers here. A human life is a human life. The complications of opioid toxicity 
and really naloxone toxicity are important to know. So one unique complication of opioid toxicity is lung injury and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. It's super rare. It's less than 3% of patients receiving naloxone. However, if we think about how many overdoses occur in this country, 3% is not a negligible number. The pathophysiology is unclear, but it can be a major adverse effect of opioid overdose, especially in morphine, heroin, methadone. It seems that the trigger is some form of iatrogenic from reversal of opioid toxicity with naloxone, and there's a rapid precipitation of withdrawal in the setting of elevated PCO2, causing a surge of catecholamines, and then that increases the afterload and vascular permeability of the lungs, etc. Oh my god, this is so insane. You don't need to know any of this, why it happens. It's interesting though, and this is just another reason to use small doses of naloxone when possible. So this non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema has a rapid onset, and often with crackles, hypoxia, frothy sputum, delicious. Expect hypertension and tachycardia with these patients. It looks like frank flash pulmonary edema. That's because it is, except it's non-cardiogenic. And unfortunately, just when you're about to ask, probably as you're listening, there's no published evidence-based guidelines on how to manage this. <laughs> Thankfully, this will not be on board exams. So really, our job is done since this podcast is board mom, so we're not going to talk about it anymore. See you later. Just kidding. We're going to talk about some things. So supportive management is indicated here, and I've had patients like this before, and you're going to do supplemental oxygen, likely with NIPPV, BiPAP, or CPAP, and that's standard of care, at least in what I read online. Diuretics have been quoted as helpful, along with nitroglycerin, potentially, if patients are hypertensive. But honestly, it's just one of those things where we don't really know. Do the best you can. Treat flash pulmonary edema. Hope you don't have to intubate them, and admit them to the ICU. That's all we have time for right now. And that's a wrap. Another board bomb delivered here. Remember to check out our EM Rapid Bombs podcast. That is at emrapidbombs.supercast.tech. If you have any questions on where that is, or you're like, you know what? I don't want to memorize that. I've already memorized like six pager numbers today at shift. Then you can just go to emboardbombs.com or go below in the show notes and find our address. Hopefully, Ultifot will be back next time. That is all the time we have for today. Feel free to hit me up with questions anytime. Drop an Apple review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm out. Bye.